Everyone struggles with doubt. No one is immune to doubting the Lord. Everyone struggles with doubt. But at the end of the day, doubt is always about us. It's always about what we are going through. My friend John Newton observed this back in the late 1700s. He was a pastor in London, and he said, It seems if doubting could ever be reasonable, there is no one who has greater reason for doubting than myself. His point there was, listen, if it's just me with me, I mean, there's a lot of reason to doubt. But as we acknowledge every Christian struggles with doubt, the question is, well, what should we do with it? And I think the best tactic that we have when we engage with doubt in our own lives is to take that doubt to Jesus. Not to sweep it under the rug or pretend it's not there, but to take it to Christ. And that's exactly what we see happen here in Matthew chapter 11. John the baptizer has been uh, imprisoned. He's been arrested because of his preaching. It didn't fit with the cultural norms of the day. And he had offended some people in high places. And so here he had been taken and put in prison. As he's in prison, he's hearing about Jesus's ministry. uh, But then at the same time, he was a little concerned now, we'll talk about the reason why he was concerned in a minute, but one way or another, he, wend- he wondered if Jesus was the real deal. He doubted. He wavered. And so he sent his disciples to come to Christ with that question. Well, what about you this morning? Are you struggling with doubt in, in any way? Are you looking to the Lord and wondering, wow, God, I'm not sure if you're there. I'm not sure if you know what you're doing. Maybe you're looking at Christ and you're wondering, is this really it? Is this all that you have for me? The best thing I think we can do is to follow the example of John the baptizer and take that question right to Jesus. What's so interesting about this passage is how Jesus answers John and then what he teaches the crowds as a result. And we'll see that it's actually crucial for us in our understanding of history and even our understanding of how we should live each day. So let's go to the source this morning. You're going to follow along there in your Bible, picking it up in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. This is really the start of a new section in Matthew. And verse 1 is a transition verse that lets us know we are starting into a new section. So there Matthew writes, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, their towns means the towns of the Jews. That's the idea. And so we don't get any record of the missions trip or the results. Matthew just kind of moves on to, to the next, uh, next phase of his gospel, all right? But what we do learn from verse 1 is that Jesus continued to teach and preach. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the content of the teaching and preaching here because he's going to give a bunch of examples in the following few chapters in the next section. So there's a lot of examples of what Jesus taught and what he preached. So we're going to get to that. But we do have in a few verses earlier in Matthew, a little summary of what Jesus teached and preached. Uh, Matthew calls it the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus was teaching people the good news that he had arrived as the Messiah. And because he had arrived, you could now have access into the kingdom of God. This was the dawn of the arrival of God's kingdom. And so Jesus is going around teaching and preaching that. And as, again, he's preaching, this is where John the baptizer is starting to to waver and have his doubts. So we pick it up in verse 2. 
And we see John struggle. Verse 2, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. Uh, Before we get to the message, uh, a note on verse 2. You'll notice in the CSB it said that um, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, just worth reminding everyone that the, the term Christ is technically the word Messiah, right? The anointed one. And so it's not Jesus's last name, just so we're all on the same page. Now, sometimes later in the New Testament, uh, authors will use that term to refer to Jesus. They refer to him as Christ or the Christ. And so it's not inappropriate for us to refer to Jesus as Christ or the Christ. But when we do, I think it's always important we just note that that phrase means something. It means Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And I think the CSB is right here in verse 2 to translate it what the Christ was doing. So John here is fully aware that, that Jesus has claimed to be, and John's role is to point him out as the arrived Messiah. He is the promised one. He has come. But again, he's a little you know, confused and, and wavering on it. Verse 3, his disciples, he sent his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, before we were too harsh on the apostle, or excuse me, on, on John the baptizer here, we need to just recognize that there are plenty of reasons why he may have doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe he thought Jesus is just another prophet in like the line of you know, prophets pointing to the coming Messiah. He didn't know. But he's in prison, right? And Generally speaking, the expectations from the Old Testament were the Messiah was going to come and like, da-da-da-da, like that was going to be it. Like you're going to take care of the enemies and set up God's kingdom and, you know, mop up all the trouble spots and that it's going to be good. So I don't think getting arrested and thrown in prison was in that general, you know, equation. Now, if you carefully read the Old Testament, you might see, oh yeah, the Messiah would suffer, but Let's just forgive John the baptizer for thinking that once Jesus arrived, it was like go time. And so maybe John was frustrated that Jesus wasn't being political enough in his ministry. It's possible. Matthew doesn't tell us. Or maybe John was frustrated because Jesus wasn't being religious enough. Isn't that a funny thing to say? But the fact is that we'll see the Pharisees continue to struggle with Jesus because his disciples didn't observe the law the way that they said they needed to observe the law. And in some cases, they didn't observe the law at all. And so here there was like some struggle, like, wait a minute, how can can Jesus be the Messiah if he doesn't uphold the law the way that the Pharisees were upholding the law? And maybe John had a little bit of that thinking, and he's like, what's going on here? I've heard Jesus' disciples aren't observing the Sabbath properly, and they're not doing this, they're not doing that. What's going on? He wasn't religious enough, perhaps. Or maybe, maybe it was just that Jesus wasn't quick enough. I mean, maybe John was just sitting there in prison, wondering, uh, what's going on? I thought the Messiah was going to get this done, and frankly, this is taking too long, as he's marking the days, right, in in his prison cell. One way or another, he's doubting Jesus. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you like the one, the one, or are we supposed to be waiting for someone else? Okay, and you just got to love Jesus's answer. It's so great. Watch verse four. Jesus replied to them, go or go back and report to John what you hear and see. And then we have verse five. The blind receive their sight. 
the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What Jesus does in verse 5 is so great because he strings together a whole bunch of prophecies about the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. So he strings together a bunch of different prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus says, check, 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 check. Like, I, I have done all these things. I mean, man, just walk over the list with me quickly in verse 5. But the blind see, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. We've had these miracles where Jesus has transformed lives with his healing. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are even raised. Don't skip the last one. The poor are told the good news. The good news, the arrival of the kingdom is being proclaimed. Jesus says, go back and tell John it's all happening. Which, in essence, is a way of Jesus saying, uh, yes, I am the one. Now, as he does this, of course, he's reminding them of the context of Isaiah. And the overall thrust is that, yes, the Messiah will do all this healing, all these remarkable things. But the Messiah will also bring greater blessing. And it hadn't happened yet. And so Jesus is basically saying, hold the line. Yes, I've, I've healed the blind and the lame and those with leprosy, and I've raised the dead, and I'm proclaiming the good news. And yes, there are other blessings prophesied in Isaiah, and those haven't come about yet. So just hold the line here, John. Hold the line. I am the one. And we see that clearly in verse 6 as Jesus gives a caution in the form of a, a, a beatitude. He says, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Now, I'm a little concerned about how we read verse 6 because of the way we use the word offended, especially in our culture today. This term is used 14 times in Matthew's gospel, and most often it refers to some kind of unbelief. It literally means to trip or to stumble, okay? And so the idea here is Jesus is saying that how you respond to me is everything. And just because I'm not political enough for you, just because I'm not religious enough for you, just because I'm not doing the, the work quickly enough for you, like all of that should not lead you to doubt me, to stumble over me, and basically what he means is reject me. So blessed is the one who, who doesn't reject me because I'm not doing the mission the way you thought it was going to be done or the way you want it to be done. So Jesus challenges John's disciples as they take the message back to John, and he says, listen, I am the Messiah. It is happening, but you got to hold the line. Be careful that you don't stumble over me and reject me because I'm not doing things the way you want them done. At the end of the day, in verses 1 to 6, we learn that Jesus is who we're looking for. I mean, that was the question, wasn't it? Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? Or like, are we waiting for another one? And Jesus says, yep, I'm him. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who will meet your needs and satisfy your soul and provide all these blessings that are prophesied and more. Jesus says, I am that one. But be careful how you respond to me. And that caution, I think, really echoes throughout the history of the church. That we are called to be careful that we don't stumble because we're frustrated with Jesus. 
I think those three areas that John may have struggled with, again, we don't know which, what it was specifically, and I think that's helpful to us because it could be any of these reasons or others. But just think about those reasons. We do often struggle sometimes with Jesus because he's not political enough. Sometimes we are so wrapped up in the politics, we're more concerned about politics than we are about Christ. That's a problem. Or sometimes we're frustrated because Jesus isn't religious enough, namely that his view of what true spirituality is conflicts with a man-centered, works-based view. And he pushes back hard against that man-centered performance orientation, law-keeping mentality. He's not okay with it. Or maybe, again, we're just struggling with Jesus because he's just not doing it fast enough. And maybe it's not so much that we just want it quickly. It's that in the meantime, we genuinely are suffering with pain. That because we're sinners living in a broken world, as Jesus delays his full installation of his kingdom, right? That means we have to live with the hardship of sickness and death and broken relationships. And there's real pain there. And so we're going, Jesus Like, we're sitting in the jail cell here. Is there any way we could kind of speed this along? But you know what? Even though the Messiah may not meet your expectations in the short run, his way is better. Even though the Messiah may not do things exactly the way or when you want them done, his way is better. Now, how do we know that? We know that because of the way Jesus uses Isaiah. Because he cherry-picks from all over Isaiah, he's, he's certainly putting into the the idea or into our frame of uh, reference here, the whole book of Isaiah. And what's going on in the whole book of Isaiah is the restoration of Israel to a glorious eternal future. And that future is for believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Those are the glory days and we haven't gotten to them yet. And so because Jesus says, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. He's saying, I'm going to do it all but I'm going to do it in my time and in my way. So in the meantime, you got to trust me. I am the one you're looking for. We might stumble and doubt Jesus because he doesn't bow to our will. We might stumble and doubt Jesus because he calls us to hard things, to repent. He calls us to follow him, which means picking up our cross. We might stumble because, frankly, we just don't want to get in line and serve and love and follow. Oftentimes, doubting, and this is a, a kind of a, a, a little bit of a tangent because John the baptizer wasn't in this situation, but oftentimes in our lives, doubting is a function of excusing sin, where We know what Jesus calls us to. We don't really want to do it, so we'll just find an objection to what he's said or or we'll try to find a loophole instead of following him. But notice here, again, the tactic that John has. He says, I'm struggling here, Jesus, but he comes to Jesus for the answer by sending his disciples. And I would just, again, encourage you that as you struggle with doubt, as uncomfortable as it may be, you got to just call it what it is. I'm struggling to believe, and then fill in the blank there, right? I'm struggling to believe if Jesus is the one. I'm struggling to believe whatever. But then take that doubt, and don't pretend it's not there. Don't hide it. Just take it to the Lord. Say, okay, I want to look at this doubt in light of his word. I want to pray and ask God to help me process this doubt. And Jesus, as he answers John, he says, yes, I am the one you're looking for. And he's the one we're all looking for, whether we doubt him or not. Now, 
if John the baptizer was wavering, does that mean he was wrong? Because his job was pretty important to point out the Messiah. If John the baptizer was doubting, does that mean his, his previous ministry was invalidated? Well, that's where Jesus turns his attention in verse 7. So the disciples from John are about to leave, and then Jesus is going to take this opportunity to instruct the crowds on a related topic. So watch verse 7. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Okay, pause there, verse 9. So Jesus takes this opportunity to just teach a little bit about John the baptizer's ministry. And so as he does so, he uses three rhetorical questions. And he's just going to drive home kind of the point that John is the real deal, and his ministry was valid, his preaching was accurate, and of course his identification of the Messiah is, is also trustworthy. But in verse 7, in the middle there, he asks this rhetorical question to the crowd. First, he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? And uh, it's so interesting. So uh, a reed swaying in the wind, the idea, of course, is that wherever the wind blows, the reed's going to go, right? This is often used as a metaphor for uh, teaching that just follows whatever's popular, right? That's the idea. And so... Jesus says, you guys went out to see John. Now, John the baptizer, he ministered in the Judean wilderness, uh, most often down by the Jordan River. So people would have had to travel a little bit to go and hear him preach. But he was very popular and interesting, um, although not that popular. So, but it was certainly interesting. So people went to hear him. He says, what did you go to hear? Did you go to just hear the latest popular thing? Are you just looking for whatever's going to tickle your ear, whatever you wanted to kind of hear? Is that what you found with John? Now, famously... John was not, how can we say this, the most gentle preacher, right? When, he, when you call people that attend your service a brood of vipers, uh, like, you know, it's not, I mean, we instruct our welcome team not to do that. Let's just put it that way, okay? I mean, that's, that's where we're at. John was not, he, was, he did not hold back. He was bold in his confrontation. He certainly wasn't just going to tell people what they wanted to hear, Jesus says, what, did you go to hear a reed swaying in the wind? He's like, no. And that's not what John was. He was a bold proclaimer that they needed to repent of their sins because the kingdom of heaven was arriving with the Messiah. And of course, John points to Jesus and says, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, no, you didn't just go to hear what was popular. But then secondly, notice verse 8. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes. See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. Now, this is really interesting. Now, it's all about fashion, okay? And the idea is this. Did you go out to see somebody who was really trendy? And trendy in the sense of popular in in the court with the king. Like, the idea is that you would wear soft clothes in the royal palace in the court of the king. The latest fashions, the finest linens, that's what you would wear in the royal court. The, the king doesn't want people that look ridiculous with him. He wants all the latest, you know, fashion and, and all everything that's cool and popular or whatever. So Jesus says, did you go to see John just to see what was popular? Now, there's a little irony here because it turns out John at that very moment was in a royal palace. He was just in the dungeon. 
And there's also a little wink here because I don't know if you remember the description of John the baptizer, but does anybody remember his favorite uh, kind of clothing to wear, what it was made of? Camel's hair. Okay. Do you know why you can't get clothing made of camel's hair at Costco? Because it's not soft. It's ridiculous. It's rough. You don't make clothing out of camel's hair. I've ridden camels. Take my word for it, okay? That's not, it's, it's rough. It's coarse hair. It's not great for clothing. But as the prophet, John wasn't concerned with what was cool. He wasn't concerned with what would make him acceptable with the king and in court. He was concerned with the message that the Messiah was coming and indeed had arrived. So repent from your sins and turn to him in faith. That was his message. So it wasn't popular. It wasn't cool. It wasn't uh, trendy. He wasn't a man dressed in soft clothes. That wouldn't benefit anybody. Somebody just to follow trends. Verse 9, what then did you go, to, go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes, finally. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. Well, what does he mean more than a prophet? John the baptizer is basically the last prophet of the Old Testament era. Okay? But all the other Old Testament prophets, including Isaiah, and as we'll see in a minute, Malachi, uh, they all pointed forward to the, to the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And so they looked forward. The Messiah is coming. Wait for him. Look for him. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming, right? And so all the prophets have this forward trajectory where they're looking forward to the Messiah. John the baptizer says, the Messiah is coming, and now he's here. And John the baptizer was the only prophet who could point to the Messiah in the flesh and say, there he is. That's what Jesus means when he says he's more than a prophet. Jesus says, listen, you went out to the wilderness because you wanted to hear from God, and rightly so. Every single human being needs to hear from God. Jesus says, what's, what's crucial, though, is that as you understand what God is saying, you understand that, that that message all centers on who he is. Jesus says, John the baptizer is the real deal. His message was legit. You didn't go to hear him because he was popular or just told you what you wanted to hear. He was popular with the king or with culture, whatever. You went to hear him because he was a prophet. And don't forget, he was more than a prophet because he pointed you to me. In answering and teaching the crowd about John the baptizer, Jesus is actually teaching the crowd about himself and his identity as the Messiah. Notice what happens in verse 10 and 11. Watch. So Jesus goes on, right? So he's settled the issue about why they went to hear him. And he says, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. This is a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is a prophetic looking ahead, right? A, a prophecy about the arrival of the Messiah. But what's interesting here is that Jesus changes the pronouns because in the original, he says, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of me. But in this case, Jesus changes it to you because he wants the crowd to understand that he is the Messiah, right? that he is the one. So Jesus grabs onto this. He also adapts the, the last clause to match Exodus 23, uh, verse 20, where God talks about sending his angel ahead of the nation of Israel. And so the, the, me, the divine messenger is the idea. And so, of course, here Jesus is claiming that he indeed is the Lord, and John the baptizer, as the, the forerunner of the Messiah, pointed to him. So again, it's all centering now on Christ. Jesus says, Malachi 3.1 has been fulfilled, and I'm here. Watch verse 11. Therefore, truly I tell you, 
among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Now, we pause there. This is, this is a really cool sentence, okay? Uh, and how interesting is it to see that Jesus thought so highly of John the Baptizer? This is not about John the Baptizer in his character or morality. This is about his role. And this is what Jesus is saying. John the Baptizer is greater than Moses. John the Baptizer is greater than Abraham. John the baptizer is greater than David. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than Malachi. And as we'll see, he's even, in some sense, greater than Elijah. Which, that was shocking and controversial. So, okay, John the Baptist, as the last prophet of the Old Testament, because he actually pointed the Messiah, had a special and unique role. And so that was why he was greater than those, those other prophets and those other famous individuals in the Old Testament. But then note that the rest of the verse. It's so significant. Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what's he saying here? Jesus is saying, John, greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Elijah even. He points to the Messiah directly, right? How cool is that? But what John will not live to see is the actual culmination of the Messiah's work. John will not live to see Jesus go to the cross for us. He won't live to see the Passover lamb die to take away the sins of the world. And he won't live to see Jesus rise from the dead and conquer sin and death on the third day. But the fact is, every single Christian after the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to say, oh, he might come, he might come, he might come. We can say he came. He came and look at what he did. Basically, Jesus is saying his disciples, both those who were living at that moment, but then also, and maybe especially those who would come later, right? Even the least, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the baptizer. Not in character or in performance or anything like that, not in morality or whatever. He's saying you're greater in your role because you get to point to me and say, look, The Messiah came and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. It's not it might happen or it will happen. It has happened. Brothers and sisters, we learned this morning that Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is the center of it all. As he gives a summary of redemptive history here, and as he quotes the Old Testament, and as he identifies John the baptizer's role, Jesus is pointing all arrows to himself. And he says, they all pointed forward. John the Baptist pointed right at me. And all those who come after will point back. But what he's saying very clearly is, I am the one. Jesus is at the center of it all. And perhaps what we could miss, especially when we doubt, is we shift our focus off of Christ and we put something else at the center. And so, you know, John, politics, religion, maybe the speed, the pain, whatever it was, and something else was more important to him than Christ himself. And so Jesus teaches the crowds and he says, you got to understand redemptive history, people. And you got to understand that while prophets are good, John the Baptist was greater, but greater still are all those who can point back to me because of what he would do for us. Now, why should you care about redemptive history today? Well, at the bare minimum, You need to care about redemptive history because it will help you rightly read and apply the Old Testament, right? So what we have in the Old Testament is this looking forward to the Messiah and preparation for the Messiah. We'll see more about that in the final section here in a minute. But you need to know that the Old Testament is so valuable to us 
because it helps us understand the Messiah's ministry. So we, we read it as uh, basically equipping us to understand why Christ is the center of it all and what he's done for us there. But also, we have to understand redemptive history because, well, frankly, we're still in it. And we need to understand our role and understand that we can't do any better than pointing to Christ. And frankly, our lives are always best when we keep Jesus where he belongs, right at the center. I was thinking of an illustration of this with regards to navigation. You know, in the old days, navigation required a fixed point of reference. Like, for example, the North Star, right? Like you have a fixed point of reference that you can refer to and that helps you understand where you are and where you're going. Of course, nowadays we have GPS, right? And so you have 30 satellites that work together to provide you with that fixed point of reference. Have you ever, by the way, been trying to use your phone to navigate and like the map doesn't load and it just shows you the, the grid? And you're like, that is not helpful to me. <laughs> like, I'm on a grid. <laughs> like, I need to know where I actually am, right? I mean, that's what the fixed point does. The fixed point orients us. Jesus says, I'm the fixed point. He's the center of it all. And frankly, our lives can't function properly unless we orient ourselves to him. He is our North Star. He is that GPS satellite that keeps us oriented. He's got to be that. And so here's John the baptizer who's languishing in prison, and he's trying to figure out, did I miss it? Now, probably you're not going to end up in the royal dungeon, right, at Machaerus. You, you can actually visit this. It's in the, the country of Jordan. You can go visit the place where John the baptizer was held in prison. It's an archaeological site. You can see it. But the fact is, you're probably not going to end up in a place like that. But you may end up in a circumstance that causes you to go, Lord, what are you doing? You might end up in a circumstance where you're facing a challenge with your family, or you're facing a physical trial or sickness. You're facing some kind of financial deal and, and, and challenge, and you're, you're wondering, Jesus, like, did I miss it here? Because it doesn't seem like things are going towards Isaiah's glorious vision of the new heaven and the new earth. I'm, I'm just, I'm missing it, Lord. And Jesus says, I'm the center of it all. And because I'm the center of it all, you can trust me. He basically prepares his disciples to interpret negative circumstances in light of his role at the center of redemptive history. He says, basically, you need to be ready for this. We can't navigate our lives appropriately without Christ being right at the center of it. That means Christ, not money. Christ, not popularity. Christ, not fashion, Christ, not football or whatever entertainment we're, we're chasing after. It's just Christ. We might sway like reeds when we seek what we want rather than what we need. Uh, this is really especially a problem when we use Google the wrong way. Um, Google's just technology, whatever. But if we search for something, especially a, a serious spiritual or life question, and we, and we search on Google, the problem with Google is it's going to give you all the results. And by the way, they're, they're, the algorithm's deciding what you should see there, so be careful about that. But okay, let's say you just look at that first page of results, and you've got you know, 10 or 15 results there. You decide which one you want to hear. 
You're like, oh, not that one, not that one. Not, oh, that sounds like what I would like. Boom, that's the one, right? Just be careful of that because often that's just you swaying. Just swaying. And Jesus says, that's not what you need. You need me. We might, we might be trending towards fancy clothes when we care more about people and what they think than what God thinks. Now, most of you aren't very trendy, so it's not a problem. But um, this is not about fashion primarily, is it? No, a little bit. But it's about caring more about what people think than what God thinks. And frankly, I think this is one of the major dangers that we have to acknowledge with the existence of social media. Social media is just a communication medium. But the problem with social media is that you can see what other people think about you. And so you just have this constant temptation to just want to be liked and want to be affirmed in those fancy clothes. But Jesus says, what people think of you is not the center of redemptive history. Jesus says, I am. The prophets pointed to me. John the baptizer identified me. And the least in my kingdom is greater than John because they point to me. It doesn't, it's going to be hard to think of this way, but it really doesn't matter what people think of us. It really doesn't. It's hard. Now, yes, the gospel is relevant to popular culture. And yes, the gospel is relevant to politics, absolutely. But it's relevant to each of those things in that it presents a contrary worldview. The gospel of the kingdom says there is a kingdom and its capital isn't Trenton and it's not Washington, D.C. That there's a kingdom and it has a king. Jesus says, I'm the center of it all. And we've got to orient our lives around that. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're doubting because your life has gotten off-centered, right? You've taken your eyes off of Christ and there's something else that, that's right at the center there that you're focused on. The fact is, though, that if we have Christ at the center, it equips us to navigate even the most challenging circumstances like persecution. Watch verse 12. Not everyone is a follower of Jesus. Jesus teaching still in this, this paragraph, teaching about John the baptizer. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. Now, what's going on here is pretty clear. Jesus is talking about opposition. He had prepared the 12 to face opposition and he prepares all of his disciples to face opposition in the end of chapter 10. We looked at that last week. So we have to be ready to face opposition. Difficulties are part of discipleship. But here Jesus says, the violent are seizing it by force. What's he talking about? John the Baptist is in prison. I mean, he's like, there are people who are using their power and authority to actively and violently oppose the advancement of my kingdom. Now, they can't stop it from advancing, but you need to know that that is going on right now. Even so, verse 13, he says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. That four is really funky. It's really weird. Like, what's going on with that four? What's the connection? There's a logical connection here. What is it? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is, even though the violent are opposing the gospel, or even though the gospel is opposed by all kinds of different means, that doesn't change the fact that the prophets and the law point to me as the Messiah. Basically, they can't stop me. And it's interesting. So prophets and law, that's shorthand here for the entire Old Testament. But, but J Jesus emphasizes the prophets and their role because he's been talking about that with John. So he puts them first. But then he also says the law. 
Like all the way right back to the beginning. Like go all the way right back to the beginning. The law here, I think, includes Genesis. Go all the way back to the beginning. It all points to me. And so even though, yes, John the baptizer is in prison, even though my disciples are going to face, and maybe at that moment we're facing or would soon face, opposition in towns as they preach the gospel, even though my followers later will face opposition. Jesus says, nobody can change the fact that I am the coming one, that I am the promised Messiah. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and now I'm here. And then he just, again, highlights John the baptizer's role. Verse 14, he says, And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. What? The Elijah who is to come. This is a quotation or a reference to Malachi chapter 4. All right, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. In Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and he is basically painting this picture of the arrival of the Messiah after John, excuse me, after Elijah returns as the forerunner of the Messiah. So Elijah's going to come, and then the Messiah's going to come. So that's, that's the prophecy, okay? And what Jesus says here is, John the baptizer is the Elijah from Malachi 4. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Luke tells us that it's, it's that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, is the wording that's used there. But the fact is, as far as Jesus is concerned, that the arrival of John the baptizer as the herald of the Messiah is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4. So again, despite opposition, the Messiah has come. And then he concludes this section with this call to respond. It's from the prophets. It's well-known and well-used. He says, let anyone who has ears listen. Let anyone who has ears hear. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying opposition is part of God's plan, but that doesn't change the fact that you still have to keep me at the center. Opposition is part of God's plan. Even so, John the baptizer, Elijah 2.0, was right. I have come, and I am the promised Messiah, the rescuer. So yes, John the baptizer will get thrown in prison. And yes, the 12 will face opposition on their missions trip. But Jesus could have gone on. He could say, yes, I will suffer for you and die and rise from the dead. And he could say, as he did in chapter 10, the fact is, if you follow me, you will face opposition too. And when you face opposition, just remember that nobody can change the fact that I am the one. No one can change the fact that I am the prophesied Messiah. So you have to ask, do you have ears to hear? There's kind of two layers on that question, I think. The first is for those who are not followers of Christ. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, right? The message here is, do you or are you ready to trust Christ and believe that he is who John the baptizer said he is, that he is that promised Messiah? He is the one you're looking for. He's the only one that could meet those needs, and he will ultimately. There's a reminder here of the open call of the gospel. As long as you're drawing breath, you have an opportunity to turn to Christ. If you have questions about that, I mean, make my week. Talk to me. I would love to share more with you about what it looks like for you to trust Christ. But there's also a second layer to this question. There's a layer to this question that directly addresses followers of Christ. The question is, are you seeking comfort 
more than Christ. Okay, John the baptizer's in prison. The plan's still moving forward. Yeah, the 12 are going to face opposition. Don't worry. I'm going to be crucified. It's okay. The plan is moving forward. And yes, all of my followers will face opposition of some level. And the fact is, I'm still sovereign. My plan is still advancing. And just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean that things aren't right. This is so hard for us on so many levels. But we have to ask the question, am I comfortable with Christ at the center of my life, even though it means hard things for me? And will I keep him at the center when I'm suffering, when I'm undergoing particularly persecution? I think it applies to general pain for sure, but, but particularly here the idea is persecution. Another way to ask it is, are you keeping him at the center? Are you keeping him at the center? This is one of the reasons why we desperately need each other so much. We are a gift to each other because one of the things that we get to do with one another throughout the course of the week is just say, hey, how's it going? Are you keeping Christ at the center? And we do that in the form of, you know, conversations and text messages and phone calls and Bible studies and care groups and all the rest. But the fact is, in all those different arenas, we have the opportunity to encourage each other to keep Christ right where he belongs, right at the center of it all. I told you about my friend Newton talking about doubt. He went on. He said, I, he said but I know not how to doubt when I consider the faithfulness, grace, and compassion of him who has promised. He said, if it's just me, yeah, I would doubt all the time. But he said, when I look at Christ, I don't know how to doubt. John wondered. He wavered, but he went to Christ. If you're here today and you're wondering or you're wavering, go to Christ. But as you do, right, listen to what he says. Because what he says is, I have come, I'm at the center of it all, and yes, I'm here for you. Doubt may have you looking inward, but Christ says, look to me. Let's pray together, and we'll ask God to help us keep him at the center of our lives. Lord, once again, we thank you for the gift of your word, uh, for how this passage helps us so much today. We thank you especially for the reminder, Lord Jesus, that you are at the center of redemptive history that the prophets and the law, they all point to you. We thank you for the special role that John the baptizer had in being the forerunner of the Messiah and being able to point to you directly. But Lord, we just thank you that the least in the kingdom is greater than him because we can point to not only the fact that you came, but also that you died and rose from the dead. Lord, help us to keep you at the center. Help us to be honest about our doubts. Help us to encourage one another to keep you at the center. Lord, protect us from being reeds swaying in the wind. Protect us from seeking popularity and peer approval. Lord, protect us from wanting the easy road rather than what is best for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us to trust you, even if it means we have to languish away in a prison. Lord, we thank you for the ministry and the impact of John the baptizer, and we pray that you would help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel and faithful followers of you. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.